Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Network Hour podcast. I am your host, Molly Kreese, and we are continuing our series, Professional Development. And today, I have a special guest with me, Dr. Caroline Brookfield. I'm so happy that she is here. And we are going to be discussing how creativity can help and can relate or help with your professional happiness. So without any further ado, I'm gonna let Dr. Caroline introduce herself and tell her a little bit about you. Hi, thanks Molly. Um, I am so excited to chat with you again. Uh, But but by myself, I'm a little, people think I'm a bit random. I'm a trained veterinarian for the last 25 years. Um, but I've also uh, discovered a passion for public speaking and developing my everyday and individual creativity. So um, I'm a veterinarian, but I also am a keynote speaker. I facilitate workshops on how people can engage their everyday individual creativity, even if um, they don't think they're artistic. You don't need to do any arts and crafts. Okay, so veterinarian and keynote, public speaking. I do stand-up comedy as well. Oh, stand-up comedy. That is, (laughs) that is amazing. That is such a different um, plethora of stuff that you have going on there. Yeah. So before we dive deep into the topic, I want you to, do you have a networking story to share? One that stands out to you that you can share in the space of a minute, two minutes tops. You know, I do have a great story and it's, um, you know, how we met as well, Molly, which is through LinkedIn. Um, So I met um, uh, a woman called Sarah Elkins through LinkedIn. And over the years we have connected um, to the point where she came up to Calgary from Montana for a vacation and we met in real life. Um, and we have made a lot of different connections and networking together just through an interest in finding out what someone else is up to. And we've developed this friendship over the last probably four years or so. Um, so I really treasure that networking that I did on LinkedIn that's now turned into a friendship. Great. That is awesome. And like you said, um, we met on LinkedIn as well. And I find LinkedIn is such a great platform for that networking space and, and to meet new and interesting people, just like how we met each other. And so if memory serves me right, Dr. Caroline is living in Canada, correct? Yes, I am. And I am here in the U.S. of A. So we, it doesn't matter where you are, what country you are in. The the amazing thing of the internet and the online is that you can connect with people all over the world and still build an amazing relationship. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly great. Yeah. Tell me something. What do you do? What do you do for fun? Oh, um, what do I do for fun? So I, I live in Calgary, Alberta, which is very close to the Canadian Rocky mountains and Banff Lake Louise, which some people might've heard of. Um, so I do a lot of hiking in the mountains, um, on, in the winter, you can't live here without doing something in the winter, or you would just get so cabin fever. So I also do, I used to downhill ski, but mostly I cross country ski these days. Um, Those are two main things. I just love being in the mountains. Um, I also like um, 
you know, doing anything new. Like I took an online painting class uh, during COVID and uh, what are some other things I like to do for fun? You know, I just kind of, I like to bake. I like to, I'm not much of a, a cook so much. I, I do like to bake. So those are just some examples. And garden. I actually have a what's called an alpine garden. Do you know what an alpine garden is, Molly? Uh, no. Can you guess? So when you go up in the high mountains into the alpine area, the plants are like teeny, teeny, tiny. They're these tiny little flowers and tiny little plants that grow like in the crevice of a rocks. Uh-huh. And so I actually built one of those in my garden in the back. So I have all these little like mountain plants because I like to be in the mountains. So I brought a piece of that to my backyard. Oh, wow. That sounds amazing. And what, what happened to, what happens to it when it's winter and stuff? Do you cover the plants or is it okay um, with the change of the weather and everything? Yeah, it's actually okay. I mean, some, some winters, if we have a hard dry winter, it might kill some plants, but these are all plants that can survive the winter. And that's what makes them so interesting. They're so hardy. I think they have what I've read is they have six weeks. So they're basically alive and six for six weeks of the year, because by the Mm -hmm. time the snow melts in the spring and then the snow comes again in the fall, it's like six weeks. So they're these incredibly hardy plants. Um, and they usually survive pretty well through the winter. Okay, great. That sounds amazing. One last question, um, before we dive into the most seriousness of the topic. What is one thing that you do that people would find really, really weird that they would weird? be like, oh yeah, they'd be like, oh my God, I can't believe that she does that. <laughs> well, probably stand-up comedy is up there. <laughs> uh, what else? I mean, I have all kinds of weird things about me. I have ADHD, so uh. that comes with its own set of like unique characteristics, Um, I have a very bad memory and in some ways, and I always joke that I have a monitor, but no hard drive. (laughs) And it's just my, it's just ADHD. It's that executive functioning. It's not that I don't remember things. I mean, it is, I guess it's just that working memory. I don't have a bad memory, but if you ask me for directions to go anywhere, it can be just down the street and I will get you lost. I promise you. I am <laughs> I am really bad at giving at giving directions. Well, you and I would be quite the pair if we went to a foreign country or city. <laughs> I'd be like, I don't remember where we're supposed to go. And you're like, I have no idea where that is. So <laughs> we would be lost in 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 and we would definitely be lost and hungry and destitute. <laughs> not hungry. I always pack snacks. So Okay, be- okay, not hungry, not hungry. <laughs> Okay, let's get into it. Um, Talk about, first of all, I want to ask you, what does professional happiness, when you hear the word professional happiness, what comes to mind for you? I think what comes to mind is when you're doing a career or a job, do you get some satisfaction overall? And I sometimes bristle a bit at the idea of happiness because people have this idea they want to find happiness. But to me, happiness is just an overall contentment because you can't be happy all the time because if you're happy all the time, you'd never be sad or you'd never be happy because being happy would be normal. So, you know, I think professional happiness to me is a more of a context of, am I contented? Do I feel valued? Do I feel like I'm using my unique strengths in the way that's helping serve a purpose that I believe in. I think Mm -hmm. off the top of my head, that's what I would say. 
Yeah. And, and for you personally, um, what was, what, what factors into your professional happiness? Yeah, well, I am not very employable. So <laughs> what factors in for me is if I am working for somebody else, like as an employee, I have to really be on board with the vision and the purpose and believe in the decisions they're making make sense or understand what they're doing. I struggle in a, a place where I'm micromanaged or where decisions are made that don't make sense to me or they're not explained to me. So I think for me, is that what you asked me? What professional happiness means to me? I'm forgetting. Yeah, for you personally, yeah. Yeah, I think it's being able to use my strengths in a way mm -hmm. that, again, makes a difference in a small or big difference. Also recognizing that there are things that I'm not so good at and finding systems or support or how I can kind of get over those roadblocks a little bit. Um, and still continue to provide, you know, value and service. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, do you think you were born to um, just go a different way? Because um, there are some people who, uh, if they're working for someone, they just miserable. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know if there's such a term as you're born to be an entrepreneur or born to be a business owner, but there are some people who just can't work for someone or else they're not going to be happy. Yeah. For me, it's definitely a seasonal thing. So I don't know that I can't work for somebody because I've had jobs where I've been very successful and really enjoyed the group I worked with for the reasons I mentioned, you know, being on board and understanding what's going on. Um, and it depends on the time of the life, a life, right? Like when my kids were quite young, I didn't, you know, I wanted to build a business, but it wasn't realistic, like to be up, you know, taking care of babies and building a business. And, um, you know, I, th I think that for me, it's not a one or the other for me. I mean, look, Molly, I have a low BS tolerance, so <laughs> it really doesn't matter if I'm working for myself or someone else. Like if my BS meter is going, I'm not going to be happy. Does that make sense? <laughs> but it's my you. own or somebody else's. <laughs> I hear you. I definitely hear you on that one. No, no toxic work environments. That's, that's crazy. So talk about, um, because you talk a lot about creativity and I see creativity. It's something that's important to you. It, it, it literally seems to flow through your veins. Um, so talk to us a bit about uh, creativity and, and why you feel so strongly about that. Yeah, well, I think I resist, I wish there was a different word because when people hear creativity, a lot of times they think it's something artistic or yeah. like performance. And what I love about creativity is number one, everybody is creative. It's a biological human fact. But what makes some people more apparently obviously creative than others, whether it's creative thinking or whether it's uh, art or design is certain habits that they double down on and certain things that they do to allow their own creativity to thrive. And what I'm seeing these days are, you know, even before COVID is people who are struggling to find a new way of working or new way of doing something, how to think differently. And when we're faced with uncertainty, like we have been over the last few years, it actually biologically pushes us to do the same thing we've always done because it's always worked. Right. So something that worked last week might not work tomorrow, but we're 
biologically wired to jump to things that have worked in the past because up until the last couple hundred years of our our society it made sense like you're not going to you know think of a creative way to run away from a saber-toothed tiger right <laughs> because what you've done before usually works right so we have a bias against creativity i think that we don't recognize and that's why i'm so passionate about it because it's accessible to everybody we need it more than ever and as i you know, have been diving deep into the research over the last three or four years, it is actually phenomenal, the global benefits that people get from doing something simple, like making a meal or tending to a garden or um, adding a dash of spice to a meal. Those are all things that are creative. And we all have that capacity. So that's why I'm so passionate about it. What happens when someone is not able to um, work or take advantage or, or, or create that creativity space. Uh, what, 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 what happens? So you, you mean if someone's like not making the space or the conscious effort to use their creativity? Yes. You well, just did it better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I just want to clarify. I think what happens is those people tend to um, stick to status quo solutions. They tend to go to default positions. They can get uh, frustrated by change because they're not tolerating ambiguity and uncertainty very well and become very rigid in their thinking. And I think there's lots of examples of people who are in traditionally very non-creative roles, like maybe accounting or um, engineering that are actually quite creative and they just don't maybe recognize they're being creative as well. Mm -hmm. So they don't get the, you know, they don't, they just think, oh, well, I just made, I like to cook and that's not really creative. I'm not drawing. But I think when people start to recognize that what they're, they're already doing something creative. Like I guarantee that the people who say they're not creative are doing something creative, but mm -hmm. if they take the time to focus on uh, and being more intentional about it, then they'll get more of the benefits. So I think, you know, people who aren't creative, I don't want to say that they're not happy because I wouldn't know if that's true, but what I do, what we do know is the research shows that people who do something like knitting or making a meal or something creative are happier. They do mm -hmm. have a, a higher positive effect. So I guess you can't jump, make the leap. I, I like to be very data focused. So I don't know that I could make the leap that people who aren't creative are unhappy, but we do know that, you know, those people could potentially be happier if they are exercising their creativity. Yeah. But there's different forms of, of creativity, right? Because one of the reasons why I really um, hone in on this topic and really did some research and wanted to talk to different people about professional happiness is because uh, since the pandemic and all of this stuff, I've been noticing so many people that are unhappy in their jobs, in their careers and what they're doing. And there has been a lot of people pivoting, a lot of people reassessing their lives. And just for my own personal story, I remember being in a job that I absolutely did not like, but had to be in it because of circumstances. And that created, um, my productivity was low. I was going in with um, a different headspace, different men my mentality was all over the place. I didn't want to be social. And I was literally professionally unhappy. And so I would say that even though I was doing the things that I was supposed to be doing at work, 
I would say that I was not tapping into my creativity because I was not tapping into my true self. What, what do you say about that? Oh, yeah, Molly, I absolutely agree. I think, you know, you said a key things, you're not tapping into your authentic self, which is what holds a lot of people back from being creative, because it's very personal, and we feel judgment like physical pain. So if you're not a in a psychologically safe or an environment where you feel like you can share your creativity or your ideas, you're not going to do it because we feel judgment like physical pain. So we don't express our true selves, we don't express our unique ideas, like we self edit, oh, that's going to be a dumb idea, or, you know, John's going to like, punch holes in that. Or then we worry about like the repercussions, like my boss is going to think that I'm an idiot if I say this, you know, so I think that holds a lot of people back from, um, from being creative. And there's a few, there's kind of three dimensions that I feel like are really intertwined. So there's uh, everyday creativity, um, tolerance of ambiguity, and resist and resilience. So those three in um, University of Queensland study are highly correlated with each other. So whether you're exercising your creativity by building a break room hygiene plan or developing a pivot table for your business Q1 results, that's highly correlated with being able to step into uncertainty, potentially face failure and rebound from it. So resilience is really the practice of doing that. Like you can't be resilient if you never meet an obstacle. Do you agree? Yeah. Yeah. So creativity is a way every time you do something creative, whether it's you know, planting, a, planting some seeds in the garden, you don't know what's going to happen, but it doesn't really matter, you know, unless you're starving and you need to actually grow that for food, but you know, you don't know what's going to happen, but it's low stakes. So you're practicing stepping into that space of ambiguity and uncertainty and being okay with not knowing how things are going to work out so that when you're changing jobs or you're, you know, managing a new person, or you're going to have to change your focus and product development, you've got that muscle that you can be like, okay, that's okay. I'm feeling a little uncertain, but you know, really how, what are the risks here? What are the pros and cons? And you can look at it in a more objective way, as opposed to just reacting out of our instinct, which is no, like nothing new, do what we've always done. We'll just put a different spin on it. We'll make a different flavor of cake, but we'll make a cake instead of mm. making butter tarts, you know? <laughs> so I don't know if that kind of went on a bit of a tangent there, but I think to answer your question, um, essentially about happiness and creativity, I think is you need to be in a place when you were saying that you were, weren't using your creativity at work is because you didn't feel valued. You didn't feel like your work mattered. You didn't feel included probably. And no one's going to be creative in that environment. So if a company comes to me and says, my create, my employees aren't creative. Can you make them creative? And I go and I find out that they're like, we don't bother because I've been shut down before, or I'm afraid because I think I'm going to be like um, disciplined or the last person who is very creative lost their job. Like, you know, that's the problem is not the creativity. Everybody has creativity. It's that the environment, like you were alluding to your other job, the environment is not conducive to people using their creativity. So like, I can't, you know, I can't come in and say, I'm going to teach people how to be creative because they're already creative. It's like, I can't teach you how to breathe. Right. Mm-hmm. But if I, I could teach you how to do like box breathing or pranayama, and that could help you breathe more efficiently and effectively. So creativity is exactly the same. Yeah. So to your point about the environment is so important. And sometimes there's not a lot people can do in their work environment to affect that. And so that means then maybe they can do that on their own time. Like 
were something that is more personal to their work versus so that's that's gonna factor into my follow-up question because okay. I was gonna say that what do we work like what 80 percent 85 percent of the day or uh, what of our time on earth goes into working um professionally and then there's that 20 or 10 percent based on your job that you're doing or whatever some for some people it's five <laughs> believe it or not it's like they work all around the clock but how do you set aside um, that sort of creativity that you that you did at work, and then now you have this twenty percent or this ten percent of time over here. How do you um, hone in on your creativity over here and be deliberate in in what you're doing so that you balance the scales and that you you're just not being creativity professionally only? Because in my mind. If, if, if it's not balanced, then you're not going to be satisfied. You're still not going to be happy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, if I understand you right, what you're getting at is like, how do you kind of embed creativity throughout everything? And even if you can't be doing a lot of creative things at work, how do you balance that out with doing it at home? Is that kind of what yes. you're wondering? Yeah. Yeah. I think, so it's kind of like going back to breathing as well. It's kind of a practice. So you can be creative at work in your own little way. And that could be the way that you pack your lunch for the day. It could be, you know, the way you kind of arrange your file folders, you could use different colors or the way you file it. So there's always a space for creativity, even in an environment where you can't express that outwardly in the organization. So I think um, it's important to think about that. And as well as like cre creating in a bigger picture, like creating the life you want to live. Like if you are miserable in a job, how do you do small creative things to look for a different job or to change your role or change your manager or make a change in your company so that other people can um, experience creativity because it is contagious, right? So if you start mm -hmm. showing some creativity at work, even if it's a tiny little bit, other people will see that and, um, and, and it's contagious. So when you're talking about like, how do we embed creativity into our life at home? I mean, you can do things like painting and, and singing and joining a choir if that, you know, really is something that fills you up. Um, I can't sing according to my kids anyway. Um, but it's also like a practice of, again, you know, what do you like to do at home? And how can you do that in a slightly different way? So even things like on your way home from work, if you stop at the same grocery store to pick up the same type of food or the same brand of pasta, you know, switch things up a little bit, try something new. Um, you know, it might not work out, but it might work out. And sometimes it's important to get that variety in your life so that you have ingredients for your creativity. The other thing that's really important is to give yourself time to daydream and think. So um, and this is all part of like a, the five habits that I talk about. So it spells the word dance. And because I have ADHD, of course, I started in the middle with N, which is novelty. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll start at the beginning for the neurotypical folks in the audience. Um, so the, the word spelled dance. So D is to daydream. So we have our phones. We're like always on them, you know, just put your phone down when you're in a lineup and um, look around or stare out the window and enjoy the view instead of like sticking your nose in the latest meme on TikTok, right? Um, so daydreaming is important. 
um, facing that ambiguity that I mentioned, like trying something um, where you don't know what the outcome is going to be and be okay with the failure and, and make sure you understand what the downsides are. Like, you know, really what's the big deal if I have rice instead of noodles with this dish, like really it's not huge, a huge risk, but just try and be more open to facing that uncertainty. And then there's novelty, which is doing a lot of different things and C is for curiosity. So wonder why, wonder why things are the way they are, because it takes a lot of vulnerability to ask why something is the way it is. And for creativity to find a new solution to think differently, you have to wonder why it is the way it is in the first place. So curiosity is very important. And then the last one is to edit later. And that is very important for especially people who have an idea and probably don't even realize they're doing it. And they're like, oh, that's a dumb idea or that'll never work. Um, it's really important when we're thinking of new ideas that we separate our idea generation part of creativity to our idea selection part of creativity, because there are very bad ideas. <laughs> <You> know, like. <laughs> But sometimes you have to articulate and like throw those bad ideas out so that it gives you the better idea that then mm -hmm. you can now select to implement because creativity is not just imagination. Like I can imagine how to get a unicorn to the moon. That's imagination. Creativity is actually doing it or trying to do it. So that's the difference. I, I love the edit later because I feel like a lot of us are going back to something that we might have been passionate about or something that we thought of and we just put it down and forget about it and we didn't take the time to flush it out or to get feedback back or to do some research on it and I think now is the time to go back and to like you said edit later pick it up again and see what can become of it if anything but it it serves the right for you to really do that and and, and try to figure it out. Yeah, you know, uh, one practice that comes to mind with that is, that you're speaking about is um, if you ever meet a stand up comedian or stand up comic, they usually have a notebook that they carry with them everywhere. And they write or make observations about the world and they never throw that book away. Like I've got books from years ago that I'll go back to and I was like, huh, that's an interesting observation I made about the lineup in the shopping mall you know, maybe that could be a joke, right? So sometimes it takes the time to have those ideas and let them sit and, and ruminate and, and simmer, but to go back to them and then edit them later is so key because we do tend to shut our ideas down before they, because they're not what we've always done. Yeah. And so we don't realize that we have this unconscious, like negative bias against new things. So we just think, oh, that's a dumb idea because it's a dumb idea. But actually, it's not that. It's just that we're resisting it because it's not what we've always done, right? Agreed. Agreed. This is this is so good. I mean, dance. Who knew? Um, <laughs> what do you? Uh, a question. What do you think stifles uh, creativity? Oh, judgment. Judgment. Or perceived judgment. I'll give you an example. When I built an online jewelry business. Long story. Um, I didn't want to tell any of the people I worked with at the vet clinics because I thought they're going to think that's weird. You know, why would you have a jewelry business when you're a vet? That just seems so random. Kind of mm -hmm. like a vet talking about creativity, right? Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I decided I actually don't care what they think anymore. 
And I started sharing it with people and being more open about the things that I was doing. And some people were like glazed over. I have one colleague who basically just ignores me and then starts talking about something else. Um, but that's, that's their, like, I realize that's them, but most people would be really either really curious or they'd be like, Oh, that's interesting. And what I noticed was a month or two months would go by and I'd see that same person again. And they were like, you know, when you told me you had a jewelry business, I thought, Oh, that's kind of weird. But then I thought, you know, I used to do quilting or I used to, um, I don't know, do bonsai or whatever it is. And I'm like, why did I stop doing that? Because I guess, because people get so busy building their careers and their professional lives. We all were creative as kids. Mm -hmm. We get so busy doing the things we need to do. And we wake up and think, is this all there is? Yeah. It's because we're out of the habit of doing those things that use our creativity and light us up. So I think, um, you know, the judgment of others thinking like, well, I'm an accountant, I shouldn't be, you know, a, making a cooking show on YouTube. Like, who cares? Who says, who says you can't do that as an accountant? But we do, we fear the judgment of our peers, because we want to be like the people we, you know, connect with. Because at one point, if we are with a small group, we kept each other alive. That's how humans survived. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of doing something different from the group puts us at mortal danger of like, getting eaten by a tiger or starving to death. So we, we are so programmed to be like other people. And I think the biggest gift you can give yourself is your big brain that you've developed over thousands of years to say, actually, you know, this is an outdated operating system. Uh It doesn't work anymore. It doesn't matter if I tell a joke and they don't laugh. No one's going to stick me on an ice flow and send me out to the ocean, you know? (laughs) So I think that, I think that this warped idea of judgment, which we feel like physical pain is the biggest thing that holds us back from expressing our creativity. Yeah. And, and when you say that one, what comes to mind for me too, as well, is coming from a small island, from a small, small country, um, professionally, all we talked about was becoming a doctor or becoming a lawyer or, or something of that sort. And so as a child, you only envision that because you've been limited into that box and then you come into a different country or to a different space and you realize oh my god I can come out of that box I can do a x y z all of these different things that I never knew about because I was I was always in that box and and secluded in that box so I definitely definitely get what you're saying when you when you put yourself in a box or when other people put you in that box, sometimes to you, the individual, it's hard to come out of it because you're like, what are people going to think of me? What are, what are they going to say if I start doing this over here from what they know me of or what they know me for, what they know me to be? And, and it's going to be different. It's going to be something totally um out there are they gonna accept me and so yeah I totally get what you what you're coming from with that yeah that's that's a good example of like being kind of selected into a a place that you might not even yourself have wanted to be in and I don't know if you are you familiar with the brawny Ware book she wrote a book I think called the seven regrets of the dying she was a hospice nurse do you know who I'm talking about uh no so as an author, her name was Bronnie Ware, I believe, W-A-R-E. And she wrote a book about, she sat at the bedside of many hundreds of thousands of people who passed. And she said the top regret was living a life 
that someone else wanted, not what you mm-hmm. wanted. And I think that's so powerful because I love your uh, visual of people sitting in these boxes. And I'll tell you a little secret. Everybody is sitting in a box thinking the same thing. Like, am I, can I decorate my box? Can I put a little, you know, flag on my box? And they're all just waiting for someone else to do it, to give them permission is what I think. Oh my gosh. Um, this is so powerful. I think so too, because, and sometimes I go back to thinking and I go back to my childhood and I see stuff that I did in my childhood, even in my teenage coming up, stuff that I was creative in doing. And then I look at people now and they have turned that creativity into a business and making money from it. I'm, I'm like, why, why didn't I compute that when I was doing this at that time, even though you talk about the jewelry and the other stuff, I was doing those things when I was at a younger age. Um, I think probably that's when my creativity was at its peak or that's probably when I was more free. And now I'm looking back at it and I'm like, how do I get back there? Because uh, being back there, you, you, you were creative. Um, you didn't, um, less things were impossible yes. and and you were not so so thinking that oh it's not gonna work out it's not gonna happen but now you're at an age where what they call it the responsibility and <laughs> everything is so black and white and yeah. you have to do this in order for you to get this outcome and all that kind of stuff so <laughs> how do you go back there can, or can you even go back there yes. Well, there's a very famous study um, George Land um, and colleagues did, and they were hired by NASA to create a test, like a Myers-Briggs for creativity for NASA. And so they did this test and they gave it to kindergartners. Molly, guess how many kindergartners scored as creative genius on this test? I want to say all of them. Yeah, 98%. I joke that the rest of them are probably eating glue and like sticking crayons. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then how many adults? They gave that test, same test to thousands of adults. Oh my God. Probably, probably 20%. 2% of adults. Oh my gosh. So we are all, and this is like divergent thinking. Like we're not talking, so creativity is thinking of something and implementing it. So kindergartners are extremely creative about like, how to get a unicorn to the moon or how to, you know, I don't know, build a tower of toothpicks. Right. (laughs) But I mean, we have to cut ourselves some slack because the reason we survive and the reason we can get by in the world is because we start to learn shortcuts and heuristics and how, and patterns about the world so that we don't have to think from scratch every time, because if we did have to think from scratch every time, we would never get anything done right? And we probably would all die because we'd be like, oh, like maybe I'll try this poisonous berry or something. So I think we have to cut ourselves some slack, but I think using those five habits as a starting place to start recognizing, um, number one, that the judgment is false for the most part. Nobody actually really cares about you that much about what you do. And that's one of the things I realized when I started to share my experience with my jewelry business, like, nobody cares what I do in my life. Like other than my, you know, my immediate family, they don't want me to go off and, you know, join the circus or something. But um, people think that 
other people think more about them than they really do. So part of it is like checking your ego and being like, it really doesn't matter what I do to this person I work with who I'll probably never see after I'm finished this job, right? Like who cares what they think? So a lot of it is about using your big thinking brain, ironically, to kind of, you know, we talk about like trusting your gut and follow your, you know, follow your intuition, which is I think important, but there's also a reverse to that is using your big brain to like assess whether those things that we think are instincts are really serving us in the best way that we can be served because they're outdated. We don't need to worry about what, you know, our colleague thinks about our passion project on the side. We're not going to, not going to starve to death. Right. But that's how we feel. That makes sense. Yeah. 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 My last question. Are you, are you worried that we are losing our creativity and just becoming one big angry world ball of people like robots that just get up and go to work and come home and 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 that's all the creative creativity we're gonna do is in the workplace and that's it (laughs) i don't know i I haven't gotten there yet we still there's still hope (laughs) there's still hope and i think I think I'm okay to sit in the ambiguity of not knowing that. I think I, I like to have optimism. I think people are way more resilient than, than we think. Like you think about like prior world wars and famines and in different times throughout the history of the world where we've, we faced adversity and not always helpful, helpfully come through on the other side, but we're extremely resilient. And with the advent of artificial intelligence and all of the things that all of the roles that that's replacing, I think that we're not going to have a choice. I think we're going to have to, um, in order to survive and thrive and keep pace with, we have to completely change the way we think about what defines success, you know, like that get it done hustle culture, you know, working all hours of the night on tasks that a computer can do in like a nanosecond. Mm-hmm. but that's what we're like, that's what defines people as success. So I think that we will use our creativity. I think we'll have to, I think the people who are make conversely, the people who are rejecting the hustle culture and who are making the time to helpfully use their creativity versus like ruminating and, you know, just, um, you know, getting into bad habits or a bad way of, of, of a bad mindset, Um, I think those people will be the ones that will thrive and survive. And I think we need to know that we deserve it. Like, you know, you think about before smartphones and before our industrial revolution, like people went to bed when the sun went down and they, how long do we sleep? You know, like, I think we need to go back to a little bit of, um, you know, what made us uniquely human in the first place and start outsourcing some of that stuff to the robots so that we don't become robots because we can't compete with robots. If you're kind of trying to compete with a robot, Good luck. <laughs> so um, any last minute tips you want to give um, people that are searching for that um, uh, professional happiness, they want to be at least be in a space where they're, they're happy and striving towards that goal. What, what would you, um, what are two things that you would say that they must do or advice that you can give? Um, to those people? Well, I think number one, I'd say, get over yourself in a positive way. Like do some of those things that you want to do. Nobody cares. You don't have to tell anybody if you don't want to, but follow that little voice, that little, what you used to do when you were a teenager that you loved, 
-hmm. pick it up again. Don't have to tell anybody how to do it. Just follow that voice a little bit and you'll kind of come back to um, a little bit of the creativity that you still have, but you might have put on the back burner. Um, the second thing is make sure you take time to do some of those habits I talked about, you know, we can put them in the notes, or I also wrote a book um, that outlines those habits. But doing nothing is sometimes doing everything. And trying to avoid that busy hustle is really, you have to do that if you want to think differently and engage your creativity, you have to slow down and make some space, even if it's just a few minutes you throughout the day but you do need to make that space. It doesn't come from doubling down and filling your calendar with activities. Those are some great tips. I talk about that all the time. Do nothing. Um, sometimes it's so hard for some of us to do nothing. And I, when I talk to my clients, I bring that up and I talk about that um, analogy with, um, I watch a lot of cartoon and I talk about SpongeBob and <laughs> pa Patrick trying to get him to do nothing and rest. And he's just bouncing off the walls because he can't bring himself to do nothing. Yes. So do nothing is harder than, uh, than we think, but it's important to really try and, and, and do nothing. Sometimes that's when our best creativity yes. um, comes to light. But uh, talk about your book. Oh, yeah. So um, I wrote a book during COVID and uh, it's called The Reluctant Creative because- that's there by, in the back? I see it. Yeah, I don't know if it's backwards. I think my webcam is backwards, but it's called The Reluctant Creative. And you can get it on Amazon or um, anywhere, really. I think uh, Kobo and uh, Barnes and Noble. Um, and it's really just kind of a fun, I tried to make it funny, but it's very data. I call it a, a mullet, a literary mullet. It's like fun in the front and data in the back. Mm -hmm. so, so it's got a lot of research on like the types of curiosity and the types of creativity and how it works in the brain, why it's so important. And then it expands with stories and exercises for each of those five habits. And, um, you know, I'm pretty proud of it. It was a creative endeavor, like creating something and putting it out in the world is very difficult, even for people who it's like scary. you and I, Molly, like you're doing a podcast, you're very visible. People think that, you know, people like us who are sharing our ideas are not afraid. It's terrifying to publish a book because you know, you're going to get, you have to know that you're going to get a bad review. So I actually haven't had any bad reviews so far. Thank goodness. But I'm sure there are people who will not like the book. So yeah. I, did it anyway. And that's really all it's about. All it's about how do I tap into my creativity and how do I get the confidence to share um, a little bit outside my comfort zone, right? Because everybody's is a little bit different. So someone might not want to write a book, but maybe they write an article or a blog post or a letter to the editor or something, you know, find your edge and try to push that a little bit because, you know, I, I kind of go on a little bit of a tangent here, but if we stay in comfort, which is where we think we should be, I think that's part of why people are losing their resilience and their happiness. Like what gives us satisfaction and not necessarily happiness in the moment is pushing the edge. We're born to grow. We're born to challenge ourselves and we're born to stretch the, our comfort zone. And so that's what this book is about is like, how can you start stretching your comfort zone and using creativity as a tool to start having confidence and making some small changes? That's really what it's about. That's amazing. That's amazing. And the book is available for purchase on Amazon. 
And also, if you want to stay in contact with Dr. Caroline Brookfield, you can find her on LinkedIn. Or do you have a website to share? Yes, I do. I have, it's carolinebrookfield.com. Carolinebrookfield.com. There you have it, guys. Thank you so much, Caroline, for sharing with me. This has been interesting and amazing conversation. Well, thank you. And thank you so much for sharing about your experience with creativity, Molly. Um, I always love your energy and your positive, um, positive aura. <laughs> thank you so much. And thank you guys for listening. This has been another episode of the Network Hour podcast. Until next time, live, laugh, and love and enjoy yourself. Thank you, everyone. Bye.